Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Coming up on The Science Revolution and in-depth with one of the world's top climate scientists, Dr. Michael Mann. Some of the climate issues we'll be covering include... What are the systemic things in business and politics we need to address? Will there be a safer place on Earth, or are there safe places on Earth? What's the lag time between emissions and tipping points or other changes? What are the parallels between today and past geological times? Plus, we talk about what average people can do. Stay tuned. On the line with us is Dr. Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Meteorology, the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of numerous books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy, and his new book, which will be out in just a week or three, called The New Climate War. He's also the recipient of the Tyler Prize. Michael Mann with two N's. .net is his website, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann with two N's. Professor Mann, welcome back to the program. It's uh, great having you, and thank you for doing a long-form conversation with us today. I'm really looking forward to digging into this. You've been in this business for a lot of years. Personally curious what led you into this, but also at what point you're the uh, inventor, probably the wrong word, but you know the guy who is credited with coming up with the hockey stick, this exponential growth in global warming if we start hitting certain points that Al Gore made so very, very famous. And you played a role in that as well. Was there a turning point for you in your career where it was like one of these, oh my God, moments? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Always good to be with you, my friend. It's funny when you say I've been in this for years, it doesn't feel <laughs> like it's been such a long period of time, but it really has more than two decades now since we published the so-called hockey stick curve. And so I have been on the front lines of this battle now for decades, the battle to inform the larger public discourse over climate change, over the threat that it represents and what we can do to address it. If there was a, a turning point or a, a pivotal moment, I suppose it would be in the wake of our publication of that first article in the journal Nature back on Earth Day 1998, April 22, 1998, when we published the first uh, original version of the so-called hockey stick curve. And it got lots of media attention. But more than that, it started to get attention, I would say, unwanted attention from fossil fuel interests, those promoting them, bad faith efforts to discredit the hockey stick curve because of what it said, because it spoke so clearly to the reality and the threat of climate change. And as such, it represented a threat to those powerful vested interests, the fossil fuel industry and those promoting their agenda. And so I found myself, you know, as a mild-mannered scientist who had studied math and physics, I had never prepared uh, literally for what you might call warfare. 
I never imagined in my studies, in the scientific work that I did, that I would be subject to bad faith attacks by bad actors looking to discredit me and the hockey stick curve through whatever means possible, uh, looking to intimidate me, whether that meant hostile congressional hearings by climate change denying senators and congressmen or nasty editorials in the Wall Street Journal or, you know, defamatory attacks on Fox News. Your training as a scientist in math and physics does not train you for that sort of combat. But over time, I've learned really to embrace that uh, opportunity that it's given me to inform this larger dialogue. And so uh, no regrets when it comes to where I've ended up. But sure, I've got battle scars to show for it. Yeah. I mean, we're both on the receiving end of a lot of that kind of stuff. You in a much larger way in a much larger universe. Was there a time prior to 20 years ago when you published The Hockey Stick, was there a time when you were unaware of how dire the situation could become if unchecked? And if so, what woke you up? Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's it, it's a good question. In the early 90s, when I was starting my graduate work, I was actually a graduate student in physics and eventually switched into the Department of Geology and Geophysics to pursue earth science research and climate research. But I started out as a theoretical physicist. I was at Yale University at the very end of the 1980s. And at the time, the presidential science advisor to George H.W. Bush, President George H.W. Bush, was D. Allen Bromley, a conservative nuclear physicist from Yale, who, in fact, came back to Yale University while he was serving as a science advisor to give a lecture to us physicists, us fellow Yale physicists. And I still remember that lecture where he lambasted climate models and criticized climate research. Of course, at that point, he was advancing an agenda, an agenda of disinformation, efforts to undermine public faith in the science of climate change. And that meant that a conservative presidential science advisor saw it as part of his mission to discredit climate research to a group of mostly young physics graduate students like myself. Several years later, I would find myself actually in that area of research. And I never forgot the fact that there was this whole culture in physics and other fields in engineering of scientists who were adversarial when it came to climate science, and not because of the science, but because of the ideology. There was sort of a conservative streak. My colleague Naomi Oreskes has written eloquently about sort of how climate change denial sort of had as its origins these Cold War physicists who feared anything that was a threat to principles of liberty and freedom, and they saw climate change as such a threat for ideological reasons. And for that reason, in the culture of physics and engineering and some other fields, there was this distrust of climate science. And I literally transitioned from somebody who was within one of those fields in the world of theoretical physics to an earth scientist, to a climate scientist, but I never forgot the frame of mind, the mind frame that I had as a young physicist. That, I think, has served me well when it comes to understanding the origins of denialism. Isn't it sort of putting, I don't know if lipstick on a pig is a a sexist metaphor, probably is, but you know what I'm talking about. To say that this is an ideology, I mean, isn't the simple reality here, Dr. Mann, that there are a few billionaires who made their money off fossil fuel. Koch brothers are probably the most famous, but they're certainly not the only ones. 
not to mention an entire industry, ExxonMobil at the front of it, who want to continue to make money off fossil fuels. They're sitting on trillions of dollars of oil that's still and natural gas and coal that's still in the ground. This isn't really about ideology. This isn't about high principles. The whole liberty thing is BS. It's all about money. Yeah, I think that's right, Tom. And it's important, though, to distinguish between the larger forces, the puppet masters, those pulling the strings. And they are conservative interests of fossil fuel industry, the Koch brothers, who have literally are, who are invested in hundreds of billions of dollars invested in fossil fuels. So they have an obvious profit motive. And that's been the primary reason that the fossil fuel industry has literally thrown tens of millions of dollars at this massive, you might argue, the largest, best organized, most well-funded disinformation campaign in the history of human civilization, the campaign to discredit the science of climate change, to deny climate change. But what's also important to understand, and this is what Naomi speaks to in Merchants of Doubt, is that there were individuals who were prone to buying into that, who were very useful idiots, as it were, because their ideology prepared them to become pawns for those interests. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. We started right off talking about the hockey stick, and there are probably a lot of people watching or listening who are going, what's the hockey stick? You know, they haven't seen Al Gore's movie, for example. I mean, it was a while ago. You want to give us an overview of what this is? You know, we only have about 150 years of widespread surface temperature measurement around the planet, and that allows us to estimate quite confidently how much we've warmed over that time frame, over the last century and a half. But to place that warming in a longer-term context to understand just how unusual it might be, and by implication, how much it might have to do with what we are doing, with the burning of fossil fuels and other human activities that are elevating the concentration of carbon pollution in the atmosphere. To put that warming in a broader context, we need to turn to natural archives like tree rings and corals and ice cores and cave deposits, stalagmites and stalactites. Um, all of these things, ocean sediments, they can tell us something about the ancient climate. And so it's sort of a puzzle to solve. Can we put together the clues from all of these disparate lines of natural evidence to reconstruct how the climate changed in the more distant past? And the hockey stick was really the first, you know, it was a term that was given to the result of our efforts to do that. We reconstructed temperatures over the past thousand years. That's as far back as we could go with the data that we had. And when you averaged over those temperature patterns to produce a, a single number, the temperature of the northern hemisphere for that year, and you plotted it over time, what you saw was that there was this sharp uptick over the past century and a half that had no precedent as far back as we could go. And visually, it looks like an upturned hockey stick with the blade being the unprecedented warming that we've seen over the past century or so. And I think because it told a simple story, right? You didn't need to understand the physics of the climate system, the mathematics, uh, the intricacies of the science to understand what this curve was telling us, that there was something unprecedented taking place today in our climate. And by implication, obviously has something to do with us, with the burning of fossil fuels. And so it became a very potent image in the climate change debate. And that made it a threat, of course, to those powerful vested interests who want us to remain addicted uh, to fossil fuels. Yeah. And then they came after you. 
Is that the essence of the new climate wars? Yeah, I mean, that's really what the new climate war, it's about the evolution now. As the evidence becomes so obvious to the person on the street, we see the images on our television screens, in our social media feeds. The impacts of climate change are no longer subtle, right? We're seeing them play out in real time. So that means outright denial is no longer tenable by those forces of inaction. And so we'll talk about the techniques, the the tactics that they're now using instead. Dr. Mann, your new book, which will be out in a few weeks, The New Climate War, talks about how essentially there's a whole new set of strategies that the fossil fuel billionaires and the fossil fuel corporations are bringing to the table, if I understand that correctly. You want to lay that out for us? The impacts of climate change are now so obvious to the person on the street that it just isn't credible to deny that something's happening. So the forces of inaction, or the inactivists, as I like to call them, and I call them in the book, uh, have turned to a whole new set of tactics in their effort to prevent this necessary transition from fossil fuels, to block efforts to transition uh, towards renewable energy. And, you know, it includes a whole array of really somewhat nefarious tactics, such as trying to foment division within the climate advocacy community online, using trolls and bots to get climate activists fighting with each other over their vision of how we attack this problem, getting them fighting with each other so that climate advocates don't speak with a coherent, unified voice. And one of the ways they do that, by the way, is by getting people to argue about personal behavior, individual behavior, your carbon purity. Do you eat meat? Do you fly? Have you had children? And if they can get us, again, arguing with each other, then we're not speaking coherently with a unified voice demanding action of our policymakers. But the other reason for getting us to debate our travel and food choices and our individual behavioral choices, lifestyle choices, exactly, is because they want to deflect attention away from the needed systemic solutions, policies, right, legislation, actions by our executive to incentivize renewable energy, put a price on carbon so that polluters have to pay for their pollution. They don't want to see those systemic solutions, because that's really what's going to ultimately accelerate the transition from fossil fuels. So they've deflected attention instead to individual behavior. Also, fomenting doom and gloom, despair mongering. There is an increasing sector, uh, increasingly large sector within sort of, uh, again, the, the climate, the community of climate advocates of individuals who you know, have become convinced that it's too late to do anything. Um, and they've fallen into despair and this is doom the, the guy McPherson crowd you're talking about? Yeah, well, let's just go into yeah, hospice. Yeah, you know, that, you know, there's 10 years left and all life on Earth will be extinct and there's nothing we can do about it, which is an argument actually made mm-hmm. by uh, Guy McPherson. So he's an excellent example of that phenomenon. And if you really believe that there's nothing that you can do about the problem, then it leads you down that same path of inaction as outright denial, right? And the forces of inaction, fossil fuel interests and those promoting them, they don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination. They want you to end up in a position of inaction, of 
of hopelessness, despair, or just disinterest. And so we have to recognize uh, these tactics. We have to recognize the false solutions. That's another one of the, you know, the, the fronts in this new uh, climate war, promoting so-called solutions that aren't real solutions. Planting trees, well, you know, yeah, that can help at the margins, but it's not fundamentally going to address the problem at its core. Or techno fixes, right? Shooting stuff into the stratosphere to block out sunlight to try to cool the planet back down. Or dumping iron into the ocean to fertilize algae. Um, You know, what could possibly go wrong when we start tampering in an uncontrolled way at a massive planetary scale? So these are all efforts to divert attention and to divert us from taking the necessary steps policy-wise of solving this problem systemically. And so we need to recognize that those are the tactics that are being used and to not become unwitting victims, unwitting agents, really, in this new climate war. When we fight with each other online over our purity, lifestyle purity, we're playing into their tactics. When we exclaim that it's too late to do anything, that we're effed and there's nothing we can do about it, again, they win. The polluters win because they just don't want us to unite and demand action. We're talking uh, deep science here and climate science. He's the distinguished professor of meteorology and the director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of numerous books, including The Madhouse Effect, recipient of the Tyler Prize, his newest book, The New Climate War. His website, Michael Mann with two N's.net, and his Twitter handle, Michael E. Mann with two N's. And uh, Dr. Mann, to continue our conversation, they started out by saying, oh, there's no such thing as climate change or if and then it kind of morphed into, well, if it is, it's because the solar flares are heating up or something like that. Or it's just part of nature's cycles. Don't you know, we have these things every couple tens of or hundreds of thousands of years. You've pretty successfully blown all that apart. So now they're changing the direction of their attacks to uh, what you got on an airplane last week. Let's talk about that. What are the things that we really need to do? in order to control our climate. And if we fail to do these things, what will be the result? Let's deal with these. I don't know which order you want to take those questions because one certainly leads to the other. Yeah, So, and, and in fact, you touched on something, another point I wanted to make in the context of these tactics that the forces of inaction, the inactivists are using, you know, when they get us pointing fingers at each other and they distract us by getting us arguing over uh, lifestyle choices, that, of course, aids them in their effort to block climate action, to depress enthusiasm for action. And we have a mutual friend, uh, Leo DiCaprio, who, of course, is very prominent. He has a huge public profile, is very influential. His Academy Awards speech actually commanded more attention for the issue of climate change than any other moment in recent history. More people heard about climate change from his acceptance speech than through any other uh, means at any other time. There were measures that there was more online discussion about climate change in in the wake of that. And so he's very influential. He has served as an opinion leader for sort of awakening the public to the reality and threat of climate change. And as such, he's a threat. He's a threat to the inactivists. And so something else that they do is to accuse 
climate-focused celebrities like Leo DiCaprio of being hypocrites and being hedonists, you know, flying around on a jet. Uh, you know, how can you say you care about climate change? And using really disingenuous lines of attack to discredit him as a messenger, right, um, to paint him as a hypocrite, when in fact, if you look at how he lives his life and how he's devoted uh, his life to this issue, of course, he's done as, more, as much, if not more than anybody, to raise awareness and to try to do something about climate change. But they want to sort of paint him as a hypocrite, to discredit him as a messenger, to make him less effective as a messenger. And so it's sort of a threefer, if you think about it. Uh, they get us pointing fingers at each other and fighting, so they divide us. It's divide and conquer. They distract attention from the need for systemic solutions by focusing on individual behavior as if that's the ultimate solution to the problem. And they discredit some of the most important messengers. You know, and that was a long-winded sort of follow-up. But to get to your other question about what do we need to do now? Well, you know, we've got an amazing opportunity. We just voted out the worst climate offender in the history of the United States uh, when it comes to the presidency, a president in Donald Trump who uh, denied that climate change was real, pulled out of the uh, Paris Treaty, blocked our own domestic efforts to reduce our carbon emissions, did everything he could to dismantle the environmental achievements of the prior administration, of the Obama administration, and even passed Republican administrations. So there's a lot of damage that needs to be undone, damage control. And the incoming Biden administration will need to restore uh, regulations that have been stricken from the books. We'll have to make sure that we once again uh, enforce the policies that limit carbon pollution by coal-fired power plants and methane leaks from the natural gas industry. We need to enforce those policies that are already on the books, those laws that are already on the books. We need to honor our international commitments. And that's really the first thing that Joe Biden did was to signal that he would rejoin the Paris Agreement. And they're in the process of doing that. But hey, it's five years later and Paris, or at least those initial Paris commitments are no longer enough. So the United States now has to once again lead. It has to lead the international effort to not only honor those commitments of existing you know, uh, treaties, uh, the, the Paris Treaty and the, the commitments that various countries made, but to ratchet up those commitments because we're not yet on a path of limiting carbon pollution below levels that will lock in truly catastrophic climate change. We've got a lot of work left to do, and that means the Biden administration can not only undo the damage that was done, but really now has to lead and has to move forward. And there's, you know, an indication that they're doing that. He's appointed John Kerry as uh, the climate czar, um, the uh, special envoy on climate, and Kerry helped negotiate the bilateral agreement with China some years ago under the uh, Obama administration that laid the ground for the Paris Treaty, the Paris Agreement, which he also um, negotiated for the United States. He at least put forward climate legislation as a senator 10 years ago. It didn't pass, but he was involved in the effort to make sure that there's also legislative action as well as executive action. And he has been an ambassador to the rest of the world. So he's the perfect person for that position. Then you've got, oh, I'm going to forget her name, McCarthy, Gina McCarthy, former EPA administrator, who's now been appointed sort of the, the domestic climate 
leader for the United States in the new administration. And, and she was a wonderful EPA administrator, really cracked down on polluters, really advanced EPA as a way of implementing domestic policies to limit carbon emissions, the clean power plan, better fuel efficiency standards, things that have been sort of pushed to the wayside by the Trump administration. Gina McCarthy helped put those in place originally, and she's a wonderful person to coordinate our domestic efforts to make sure we have our own house in order, because if we're going to go to the rest of the world and say, hey, we really need to do more, the United States has to have credibility on this issue. And we had that credibility under Obama. We lost it under Trump we can now regain it under Biden. I understand that we offer the fossil fuel industry broadly about six to $700 billion a year in subsidies. That's right. Taxpayers, yeah. you and I are basically handing money to this industry. And I don't know if that includes the cost of our Navy protecting shipping lanes that are moving oil all around the world, but you know that's an, an added cost. Do you see any real possibility that those subsidies could be done away with? And if so, what's the path to that? Yeah, so it's a great question. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's just absolutely inconceivable. Maybe I don't know what that word means. But the fact that we're providing subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, to energy interests that are basically destroying the planet and not providing similar incentives for renewable energy is just crazy, right? It's, it's perverse. It's a perverse incentive structure. We need to level the playing field, and that's part of why you know, we need to provide subsidies to renewable energy industry. We need to put a price on carbon. I think that's an important tool in the toolbox. Some progressives recently have sort of started to back off in their support for carbon pricing. I think it's one of a number of important tools. We basically have to use every tool that's available to us, and carbon pricing is part of it. But Another important thing that you're alluding to is to not provide, you know, subsidies for developing additional fossil fuel infrastructure. No funding and no financing for new fossil fuel industry infrastructure. And the Biden administration has indicated they're committed to that as well. That's very good news. That's very good news. We're talking with Dr. Michael Mann. A professor of meteorology and the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. His new book, The New Climate War. And his new book lays out, I mean, it really is new. There's a whole shift in strategy here. Uh, you know, they've, they've left behind the tobacco industry strategies. Now they're moving on. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Dr. Mann, in the four minutes until we hit the next break, I'm wondering if you could briefly describe, you know, we use these words like catastrophic climate change or mitigate 
harms. And these are just broad generalizations. They're phrases that I think the average American has no idea what they mean. So if we just keep doing exactly what we're doing right now as a world and as a country, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the road, what will the world be like? How will people's experience change? And then maybe after the break, you can talk about you know, how things would be different from that if we were to engage in various levels of mitigation. Yeah, I mean, if we don't act you know, now, we've already been given a glimpse of what our future will look like. You know, the scenes that we saw coming out of Australia, uh, where I was spending a sabbatical, of course, their summers are winter. They're just going into their next summer now. And already they're starting to see that same extreme heat and uh, wildfires, bushfires breaking out. The, the scenes we've co- uh, seen coming out of Australia, but even not nearly so far afield, the scenes that we've seen in California and Colorado, Oregon and Washington, the devastation that's already being wrought by climate caused weather disasters, unprecedented heat waves and droughts and wildfires and superstorms. The hurricane season, the most active hurricane season we've ever seen in the Atlantic, 30 named storms. That's not a coincidence. We're making the ocean warmer. It's a more favorable environment for these storms. And we're seeing more of those uh, extremely damaging, extremely dangerous sort of category five, uh, category four, category five hurricanes that intensify ever more rapidly now because the ocean is warmer. And the faster they intensify, the more likely they are to catch us off guard. And we don't have enough advanced time for evacuations and for for preparation. So look, dangerous climate change. We don't have to use our imagination to envision it. It's already here by some measure. And the question is, how bad are we willing to let it get? How much worse do we want to let it get? So it's a matter of increasingly violent tornadoes and hurricanes, drowning like rats, rainstorms, increasing droughts, more wildfires, that basically what we're seeing amplified. How rapidly, how extreme could it get if we do nothing? Yeah, and the melting ice, which is leading to rising sea level, and that combines with these superstorms to create unprecedented risks to our coastlines. And not just here in the United States, low-lying island nations around the world, uh, other coastal regions, 25% of the global population is in an area that is threatened by uh, these coastal threats. So how much worse can it get? You know, Hollywood has sort of uh, given us a glimpse of how bad it can get, right? If we really do nothing to stem the tide, to do something Uh, We we do nothing about the climate problem. We don't get off the burning of fossil fuels. We allow the planet to continue to warm up seven, eight, nine degrees Fahrenheit over the next century, which is a possibility if we don't act. Our future will not look unlike some of the dystopian futures that Hollywood has given us. Name your favorite post-apocalyptic film. That's what our future will look like if we don't act. What happens if we do nothing? And and Dr. Mann, you said, imagine your most dystopian novel, you know, I'm thinking Waterworld or Blade Runner or whatever, that that could be the world a couple of decades or by the end of the century anyway, uh, numerous decades down the road. On the other hand, if we do take action, I guess there's a spectrum of actions, you know, from really aggressive action worldwide to more modest actions in the developed world, for example, things like that. 
how far have we gone in terms of not being able to you know, recover Arctic ice, not being able yeah. to recover our, our glaciers on the tops of mountains that, that feed giant rivers that nourish literally billions of humans around the world? How far have we gone and what accommodations are we going to have to make to the world, even with really aggressive mitigation? Yeah, uh, thanks, Tom. It's a, it's a great question, and you know the reality is that we've already gone way too far down this road, um, and there's a you know a fairer amount of permanent damage that's already been done that is essentially undoable. We may well now have melted enough ice that we will see literally meters of sea level rise over the next few centuries. If we're lucky, it will take some time to unfold, and so in the best case scenario, we will have to cope with, if you'd like to call it a new normal, a new set of circumstances that challenge our infrastructure, that challenge our ability to feed and, and, and provide space and, and water for nearly 8 billion and growing people on a finite planet. Now, as we were talking about before, uh, you know, Hollywood, these sort of post-apocalyptic apocalyptic dystopian futures are one possible set of futures if we fail to act completely. We will see civilization collapse under those pressures if we do nothing uh, about this problem. But science fiction has also given rise to more utopian sorts of visions as well. And I don't know if you've ever had the science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson on your show before. Interesting interview for you, I think, because he has recently published, I mean, he's done a lot of work in this area of sort of climate fiction. He's well known for the Mars trilogy, but recently he published a book, The Ministry for the Future, which I think is a wonderful book. And I had the pleasure of actually doing an event with him some weeks ago. He was rolling out this this new book and it sort of presents that future. It presents sort of a best case scenario where, look, we've got to cope with the damage that's been done. And there's a fair amount of damage that's been done. And there's some that's already additionally still baked in that we're going to need to deal with. But if we act now, it's still possible to have a livable future where our children and grandchildren can thrive on this planet and can thrive with a clean energy economy where we get rid of the, the dirty energy that plagues uh, human civilization, not just through climate change, but all the other um, health threats um, and environmental threats that it brings. And so a good future is still possible. Uh, read the Ministry for Future if you want a vision of what our future still can look like. Um, and that's really important to recognize that it's entirely up to us at this point. We have agency. We can decide our future. Do we want to go down this road to continue to go down the fossil fuel highway to an ever more degraded planet that resembles the dystopian futures of Hollywood? Or do we want to pursue a more utopian future like that depicted by Kim Stanley Robinson? That's still a possible future. Let's preserve that future for our children and grandchildren. I understand that the kind of net carbon zero, Greta Thunberg has been talking about this, that you know, there's all kinds of stuff in there that just isn't really solution stuff. Is there a, an individual movement that we should be looking to or a document or a book that, uh, in, in addition to your new book, the, the New Climate War, that can give us a blueprint? No, you know, my book really answers any question you could ever possibly. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there, there are a number of wonderful <laughs> books out there right now. And, of course, that phenomenon where I'm going to be unable to list them all. But, you know, Project Drawdown is a great place to start yes. for all of the things that we can do in our, our daily lives to help be part of the solution to this problem. Of course, policy voting is really critical. And let's hope that those two runoffs 
end up going in the Democratic direction, because that's the only way we'll get a climate bill on the U.S. Senate floor in the next few years. So, yeah, let me just talk a little bit since you ask about sort of net zero. What does this mean? We have to be not adding any carbon pollution to the atmosphere, arguably even sooner than mid-century, maybe 2040, if we want to avoid catastrophic warming of more than you know a degree and a half Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit with any degree of confidence. Maybe drawing down carbon through artificial means, through massive forestation, maybe that's part of the solution, but we can't allow that to be a crutch for not taking the immediate measures necessary to stop adding carbon pollution to the atmosphere. And some of these schemes that Greta and others complain about to achieve net zero sort of kick the can down the road too much. Allow us right. to pollute now. Sir, we're, we're out of time. I'm sorry. Take the carbon back out. We're listening to yep. Tom Hartman. Dr. Mann, thank you. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.